There are few things more sad than a wasted inheritance or an ignored inheritance. I'm sure you've all heard the sermon illustration at some point of the young adult who stood to receive a large inheritance from a, a rich dying relative and the young man expects that upon his grandfather's passing he's going to be bequeathed the keys to a sports car that they had gone to shop for together or a boat that they had talked about, or even just a huge cashier's check that he could spend as he likes. And then to the young man's great dismay, as his grandfather's lawyer reads the last will and testament, all that he receives is his grandfather's old Bible with a note attached that says, my dear boy, this is my most treasured possession. May you find your own treasure in its pages. And the young man is just livid. I mean, how could the grandfather do this to him? I mean, just the Bible? And he snatches the Bible from the lawyer and he storms out of the room and he goes home and he throws the Bible into a corner and he doesn't think about it again for years. At least the Bible. He thinks about this, this scenario for a long while and he, he grows up to resent his family and he becomes isolated and he, or he falls on hard times depending on how the story goes. And he winds up living alone on the street and, and for years he suffers and his difficulties eventually remind him of his grandfather's dying gift to him. And so he finds some way to get back to that Bible and he, he seeks for comfort uh, in its wisdom. And to his great shock, he opens it and finds that in each page of the Bible, there is interleaved a $1,000 bill <laughs> or some variation of that, a large check or a key to a safe deposit box taped to one of those pages. And, and oh, if this young man had read the scriptures, he would have received his grandfather's inheritance and he could have avoided all of his troubles. I'm sure at least some of you have heard some variation of that illustration before, and it is a sad story. All the misery that could have been avoided if it weren't for an inheritance that was ignored. But change some of the details. Imagine it was a key to a safe deposit box that was taped to one of the pages or maybe to the back cover of a young woman's Bible. And imagine that that safe deposit box contained family heirlooms that were passed down through generations, even as far back as 2,000 years. These are priceless treasures that this young woman was to enjoy and to steward and to pass down to the next generation. And say, not just heirlooms, deeds and titles to lands in an exotic country. I mean, just bountiful, unsearchable riches. And then imagine that these heirlooms and treasures have been passed down through the generations of the family at great cost to the family members. Predecessors and ancestors have endured imprisonment and exile and torture and even death to preserve this inheritance and pass it down to this young woman. And yet there it sits in a safe deposit box, unknown and unenjoyed by the one to whom it was bequeathed upon a sea of her family's blood, because the key to her inheritance sits ignored in the pages of the Bible. It's a terrible, terrible waste. Well, it's my judgment that the contemporary Christian church finds herself in just such a scenario. 
neglecting a priceless inheritance that our forebears have given their lives to safeguard and bequeath unto us, a treasure that has been preserved and passed down to us literally at the cost of imprisonment, of exile, of torture, and even the death of our spiritual ancestors. And that treasure isn't a windfall of money. It's not a family heirloom. It's not even a deed to a vast land or a kingdom. That treasure is the doctrine of the Trinity. The triunity of God is the fundamental doctrine of Christianity. It is the doctrine that there is one and only one God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the God of Israel, who brought his people out of slavery in the land of Egypt, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 4 says, Know therefore today and take it to your heart that Yahweh, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. And yet in unexplainable mystery, this one God exists eternally in three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches that the Father is God and that the Son is God and that the Spirit is God, and yet that they are not three gods but one God. Each person is fully and truly God. And yet no one person is the other person. The, the Bible also teaches that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. These strands of biblical teaching that are captured in the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, again, that there is one God who subsists in three co-equal, consubstantial, co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That doctrine is the heart of the Christian faith. There is no Christianity without it because there is no Christianity without God. And the Trinity is who God is. The great theologian Charles Hodge called the Trinity the fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Commentator Philip Hughes says that the Trinity is the foundation of all man's knowledge of the being and mind of God. Theologian William Shedd said the doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of theology. Christianity, he says, in the last analysis, is Trinitarianism. The Dutch Reformed theologian Wilhelmus Abrakel wrote, the entire spiritual life of a Christian consists in being exercised concerning this mystery. And Herman Bovink captured it well when he wrote, the doctrine of the Trinity is of incalculable importance for the Christian religion. The entire Christian belief system, all of special revelation, stands or falls with the confession of God's Trinity. It is the core of the Christian faith, the root of all its dogmas, the basic content of the new covenant. At stake in the historical development of the Trinity, he says, was not a metaphysical theory or a philosophical speculation, but the essence of the Christian religion itself. 
In the doctrine of the Trinity, we feel the heartbeat of God's entire revelation for the redemption of humanity. And yet, that glorious inheritance, which men like Augustine and Athanasius and Gregory of Nazianzus and Basil of Caesarea, which they gave their lives to and lives for, that stands for the most part neglected by the contemporary church through the ignorance of Scripture. One essence, three persons, consubstantial, substance and subsistence. No, 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 that, that's for the, the professors and the scholars. That's for the pastors and the seminary students. That's for the philosophers and the theologians. No, that is for the Christians. That is for the children of God who want to know their God. The cornerstone and heartbeat of the Christian faith that has sailed down as your inheritance on a sea of tears and blood is the Trinity. The Athanasian Creed is a liturgical document likely composed in the 500s AD, well after its namesake Athanasius had died. But it was so called because it so resembled the marrow of Athanasius' teaching on the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity against the heresies of early Christendom. Listen to the Athanasian Creed on the immense fundamental importance of the Trinity. It says, whosoever will be saved. Listen to that. Whosoever will be saved. You want to be saved? Before all things, it is necessary that he hold the universal faith. And the universal faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance or the essence. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Ghost. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Whoever will be saved must confess this doctrine of the Trinity. This is the universal faith once for all delivered to the saints. So if we want to stand in the historic stream of Christianity... We must receive and confess and understand our glorious inheritance that is the doctrine of the Trinity. It is impossible to overstate its importance. So much so that Bavink said that every theological error results from or upon deeper reflection is traceable to a departure in the doctrine of the Trinity. And that is how what I've been talking about so far this morning connects to, to the study we began last week. Some of you were thinking, Mike, that all sounds great, but what are you doing talking about the Trinity? I thought we just began a series on the extent of the atonement last week. Well, that's true. Last week, I introduced a series of sermons that I've entitled, Oh, Perfect Redemption, a series that seeks to answer the question, for whom did Christ die? Did Christ die on the cross for every single individual who ever lived throughout human history? 
Or did he die on the cross only for those whom the Father chose and gave to him, those who will eventually come to faith in Christ and be saved? You say, what does the Trinity have to do with the extent of the atonement? Well, the reality is you can't speak of the one doctrine without the other. The atonement is what the Savior does to save sinners. But the Trinity is who the Savior is who saves sinners. The Savior who saves by the atonement is the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The gospel is fundamentally Trinitarian, essentially Trinitarian, because the God who saves is Trinitarian. And all that God does is grounded in who God is. All of God's saving acts are rooted in His triune being. And so we have texts like Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, which you'll realize, you'll remember as soon as I start reading it, but when the fullness of the time came, God, that is the Father, sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law. There's atonement, there's redemption, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God, the Father, has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You can't get away from the Trinity in that verse upon redemption. The gospel is inherently Trinitarian. The Father sends the Son into the world. The Son takes on human nature, man's maker made man, as Augustine said, so that he might stand in man's place and redeem those who, because of their sin, were bound to suffer the curse of the law. And then the Spirit is sent to apply what Christ accomplished by transforming our hearts in regeneration and putting us into possession of all that Christ purchased. In this verse, the adoption as sons, along with the rest of the blessings of salvation. So the Father plans and sends the Son. The Son comes and lives and dies and rises again to atone for sin. And the Spirit renews and regenerates and applies what the Father has planned and what the Son has accomplished. Salvation is Trinitarian. But what does that all have to do with the extent of the atonement? I mean, how does this bear on the question of for whom did Christ die? Well, in our introduction to the series last week, you'll remember that I spoke of a common stalemate in this discussion. Mark 10.45 says, Jesus gave His life as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2.6 says, He gave Himself a ransom for all. And I mentioned that if all you do is stack up commentators who say all means many against the commentators that say many means all, you're going to go nowhere. Taking isolated proof texts and volleying them back and forth, you know, many, all, church, world, fails to, to move the discussion forward in any helpful way. Think about this. If you were to take those two texts in isolation and others like them, what basis could there be for deciding whether to interpret all to mean all without exception or all without distinction? How would we know 
whether we should interpret 1 Timothy 2.6 in light of Matthew or Mark 10.45 or vice versa. The key to breaking that stalemate is to set those isolated texts in the context, the larger context of all that Scripture teaches concerning not just the extent of the atonement, but also the design and nature of the atonement. If Scripture is clear that God designed the atonement not merely to provide a salvation that could be accepted or rejected, but actually to save... And if Scripture is clear that the nature of the atonement was not that Christ's death merely made salvation possible, but actually accomplished the salvation of those for whom he died, then when we come to two virtually identical texts where one says all and the other says many, we have some sound biblical reasons for believing that all in 1 Timothy 2.6 means all without distinction rather than all without exception. The clear biblical teaching on the design and the nature of the atonement helps us interpret the less clear teaching on the extent of the atonement. And so this morning, we're going to begin considering the design of the atonement. And that means that we must consider the designer of the atonement. And the designer of the atonement is our triune God. And I want to state my argument right here at the beginning so you know what I'm setting out to prove this morning. The argument is, because the Father, Son, and Spirit are perfectly united in their essence, the three persons of the Trinity must be perfectly united both in their saving intentions and in their saving acts. What the Father wills must be what the Son wills, and what the Son wills must be what the Spirit wills. Those whom the Father intends to save must be the exact same number as those whom the Son intends to save. And those whom the Son intends to save must be the exact same number as those whom the Spirit intends to save. And since Scripture teaches that the Father has chosen to save a particular people and not all without exception, and since it teaches that the Spirit will regenerate only that same particular people and not all without exception? It also teaches that the Son has atoned for that same particular people and not all without exception. To say otherwise is to strike at the heart of the unity of the triune God. It is to undermine the doctrine of the Trinity the most fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Mark it down. Unity in the Trinity demands a particular redemption. That's the argument. And in our remaining time together this morning, I hope to prove to you that that's biblical. And we're going to take three points to do it. First, we'll consider the triune Savior. Second, we'll examine the triune plan. And third, we will see triune particularism. Point number one, the triune Savior. And we've said it already this morning, but the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is one God who subsists or exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And there are three key adjectives that you need to know about these three persons. These three persons are co-eternal. That is that God has always existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There has never been a time when one of them did not exist and where one of them did not exist as they exist today. The Father has always been Father. The Son has always been Son. The Spirit has always been Spirit. They are co-eternal and they are also co-equal. That is, no one person is greater than the others because all three, each one, is fully God. And God cannot be greater than God. It's, not, it's true that we always say the Father is first, the Son is second, the Spirit is third. That's, that's a real order that exists among the persons. But that's not because the Father is greater than the Son. The Son is greater than the Spirit. They are co-equal. The Athanasian Creed said, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. And the three persons are also consubstantial. Now that means that they are of the same substance, the same essence the same being, the same nature. And what is that nature? It is the divine nature. It is Godhood. And that Godhood, the divine nature, is not divided among the three persons, like the Father has a piece, the Son has a piece, and the Spirit has a piece, and then they all come together and then they make God. No. That would be to say that each person is merely a part of God. So you couldn't say the Father is God. You'd have to say the Father is a part of God and makes up God when he gets together with the Son and the Spirit. No, all three persons of themselves are fully and truly God. And yet they're not three gods, but they're one God. Another way of saying that, sort of the classical confession way of saying that, is that each person of the Trinity fully subsists in the undivided divine essence. Now that sounds, you know, flowery, but you understand what that means. Each person of the Trinity fully subsists or exists in the undivided divine essence. And that means that though the persons of the Trinity can be distinguished from one another, they can never be divided from one another. There is triunity. That's what Trinity means. The being of God is indivisible. The being of God is indivisible. Well, one of the implications of the indivisibility of God's being is the indivisibility of God's actions. All of God's acts are grounded in the Trinitarian life of God himself. He does what he does because he is who he is. And so if God's being can never be divided, neither can God's works be divided. That's what's called the doctrine of inseparable operations. It's a term you should be familiar with. Again, this is your inheritance. This is what the early church occupied themselves with for 500 years. The doctrine of inseparable operations is a key tenet of Orthodox Trinitarianism. And what it means is that in every act that God performs, all three persons of the Trinity are directly involved. Because they share an identical being, an identical essence, 
No one person of the Trinity ever acts without the other two. They are always indivisibly working together in perfect harmony. So, for example, Scripture identifies the Father as the creator of the world. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 1 Corinthians 8.6 says there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So the Father is the one from whom are all things. And yet, Scripture also identifies the Son as the creator of the world. John chapter 1, verse 3 says of the Son, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Colossians 1.16 speaks of the Son of God and says, by him, all things were created. And further still, Scripture identifies the Spirit as the creator of the world. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, or literally by the spirit of his mouth, all their host. So the Father creates the world by speaking. The Son is that word spoken. And the Spirit is the breath by which the, the word goes forth. That's glorious triunity. So the Father created the world, the Son created the world, and the Spirit created the world. And the point is, these are not three separate acts of creation. There are not three worlds. The one act of creation is performed by the, by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Augustine was arguing with heretics on this point about how the acts of God can never be separated from one another. And he says, look, the text says the Father created the world, the Son created the world, and the Spirit created the world. If they're three distinct beings, separate beings, you're missing some worlds, right? If, if the Father created the world, the Son created the world, and the Spirit created the world, and they're three and not one, and you got one world, where'd the other two worlds go? I like that. Fifth century theological humor. Three distinct persons acting, but their acts, like their essence, are perfectly united and inseparable. Now, that does not mean that the acts of the Father, Son, and Spirit can never be distinguished from one another. Remember, the, the persons can be distinguished, but not divided. And so while their works cannot be divided, they can be distinguished. Distinguishing the acts of the persons from one another came to be known as the doctrine of appropriations. So inseparable operations, always complemented by the doctrine of appropriations, which means while no person of the Trinity ever acts apart from the other two, each divine act is properly appropriated or attributed to one of the persons in particular. And so to use the example of the creation of the world, Scripture most often attributes the creation of the world to the Father. For another example, it, it is the Son alone who is the subject of the incarnation, right? The Father and the Spirit do not take on human nature like the Son does. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philippians 2, 5 to 7, Christ Jesus nullified himself by taking the form of a slave. But it was the Father who sent the Son into the world, 1 John 4, 19. And it was the Holy Spirit who conceived the Holy Child in the womb of the Virgin, Luke 1, 35. 
So even though the Son alone is the subject of the Incarnation, even the act of the Incarnation is not without the participation of the Father and the Spirit. Think of it this way. The persons of the Trinity work neither in unison nor in discord, but in harmony. The doctrine of appropriations ensures that they do not work in unison because different acts are attributed to different persons. But the doctrine of inseparable operations ensures that they're never in discord because their undivided acts are rooted in their undivided essence. In every act of God, all three persons of the Trinity must work in perfect harmony or they are not one God. And that's no less true for the work of the triune God in salvation. As I said, he is our triune savior. And I could go to a lot of texts to illustrate this, but I want to go back to the text that Kevin read for us in Titus chapter 3. So turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. And here, the Trinitarian emphasis, see your triune Savior here. Titus 3, 4. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. And that reference to God our Savior there is a reference to God the Father. Verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So our saving Father saves us by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And verse 6, the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So within a span of three verses, we are told, or four, was it four, five, six, seven, four verses, we're told that the Father is our Savior, the Son is our Savior, and the Spirit is our Savior. And these are not three saviors, but one Savior. The, there are not three salvations, but one salvation. Salvation planned by the Father who sends the Son, Salvation accomplished by the Son who bears our sin and salvation applied by the Holy Spirit who renews and regenerates us. We saw this already in my reference to Galatians 4, 4 to 6. The Father sent forth His Son according to plan. The Son redeemed those under the law. The Spirit is sent into our hearts and imparts us, to us the adoption as sons. But perhaps nowhere clearer is this reality of the triune salvation than in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn to Ephesians 1 with me. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So the plan of redemption begins with the Father's saving choice, his saving election of his people before time began. Before we had ever existed, 
The Father chose a people for his salvation. How's he going to save them? Verse 7, in him who is him, it is the end of verse 6, the beloved, the Father's beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And then in verse 13, having believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And so the Father chooses, the Son redeems by his blood, and the Spirit seals and sanctifies. Redemption planned, redemption accomplished, and redemption applied. Our triune Savior works neither in unison nor in discord, but in perfect, glorious harmony. Second, this triune Savior saves us according to a triune plan. Number two, the triune plan of salvation. One of the greatest causes for confusion and misunderstanding concerning the nature and the extent of the atonement stems from abstracting the Son's saving mission from the eternal Trinitarian plan of salvation. See, when the eternal Son took on flesh to dwell among man and accomplish our salvation by his atoning death, he was not acting as a rogue agent haphazardly embarking on a mission of his own devising, divorced from the intentions and actions of the other persons of the Trinity. We've learned from the doctrine of inseparable operations that that would be impossible. But that's not just an implication of Orthodox Trinitarianism. It's also explicitly biblical. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, I'm not acting independently here. He says that he self-consciously conducted every aspect of his ministry in strict accordance with the will of the Father. And that will of the Father was made known to the Son in the eternal council of the Trinity in which the Father, Son, and Spirit devised a triune plan to rescue fallen humanity from sin and death. And we see Scripture testify of this triune plan in several ways. In the first place, a number of passages speak of the saving work of the Son as being divinely predetermined. So you're in Ephesians 1. Turn to Ephesians 3 and verse 11. In this section, Paul is speaking of the gospel that was accomplished in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, where he makes Jew and Gentile one, where he brings about the mystery. And in verse 11, he says, that gospel was accomplished in accordance with the eternal purpose which the Father carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that is to say that Christ's redemptive work was carried out according to a predetermined plan, namely the Father's purpose which he designed in eternity past. Sorry to do this to you, but flip back to Ephesians 1. Should have done Ephesians 1.11 first. You were already there. In that verse, he says basically the same thing, that we have been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. 
So this eternal purpose was the counsel of God's will. There was a predetermined eternal plan according to which Christ carried out his saving mission. And so at the Last Supper, you don't have to turn there. But when Jesus was telling his disciples that he would soon be betrayed, he said in Luke 22, 22, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Determined by whom? By the Father's eternal purpose. Better said, by the triune eternal purpose and plan. Acts 2.23, Peter preaches his Pentecost sermon. He says, Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 4.28, the church confessed that those who conspired to crucify Jesus did only, quote, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And so Scripture makes clear that all of the Son's atoning work was carried out according to this eternal divine purpose or plan. Secondly, there are a number of passages that identify Jesus' mission as a matter of obedience to his Father's will, which clearly implies that his will has been made known to the Son in a prior agreement. We've seen John 6, 38 already. I've come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 10, verse 18, when Jesus speaks of laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin, he says, this commandment I received from my Father. In John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the Father who sent me has given me a work to accomplish. That's why I'm here. That's what I'm doing. And we see the same at the, at the close of Jesus' ministry in John 17. As he prepares to return to the glories of fellowship with the Father, he prays to the Father in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So whatever the Son intended to accomplish on his saving mission, it was precisely that purpose for which the Father had sent him. And so there's got to be perfect unity. And third, there are a number of passages of Scripture that outline the roles that the Father, Son, and Spirit would take on in this enactment of the triune plan of salvation. We go to a number of passages for the sake of time. Turn to Isaiah 53. We've already seen in Ephesians 1 that this plan begins with the Father's choice to rescue certain sinners from damnation. And if we had time, we could turn to Isaiah 42, where the Father says he's going to send the Son into the world to accomplish salvation, that he's going to anoint him with the Holy Spirit. So the Father will put the Spirit on the Son, Trinitarian salvation, Trinitarian plan. But in Isaiah 53, especially in verses 10 to 12, we find that the Father will send the Son into the world, verse 12, specifically to intercede for the transgressors. How? By bearing their sins. The last couplet there, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. How's he going to do that? Just in the middle of verse 12. He's going to do that by pouring himself out to death. And after all of this, the promise, the father promises to reward the son for his work. Look at verse 10. If he, the son, would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. 
Again, verse 12, therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong. So the father anoints the son, sends the son to die for those whom he's chosen and promises to reward the son for his work. That's the father's role in this plan. What's the son's role? Well, we, we see it in the verses we've just read. He's going to take on a human nature. He's going to live in the weakness of human flesh. He's going to suffer. Then he will bear the sin of many by dying in their place. And then what's the spirit's role? Well, we don't see it in this text, but consider the rest of the scriptures. The spirit's role is to beget the son in Mary's womb, Luke 1.35 and to empower the Son throughout his life and ministry. And so at Jesus' baptism, we, we see the, the Spirit descending upon him as a dove, Luke 3.22. Then we're told in Luke 4.1 that Jesus was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. The Spirit was with Jesus in his temptations by Satan. Luke 4.14 says that after Jesus emerged from his temptations, he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Matthew 12, 28, the Spirit empowers Christ to perform miracles. Hebrews 9, 14 says that in his death, Christ offered himself without blemish to God through the eternal Spirit. And Romans 8, 11 says the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So, and then apart from supporting the mission of the Son, from his conception to his death and even through to his resurrection, then the Spirit comes and applies the salvation that the Son has accomplished as the Spirit regenerates God's people. So, to summarize, in this plan, the Father appoints the Son to be the mediator for those whom He's chosen. And He sets the terms for the Son's mediation. You're going to have to bear man's nature. You're going to have to bear man's curse. The Son voluntarily accepts His role as mediator and carries out his entire saving mission according to the Father's will. And then the Spirit agrees to be the agent of the conception in the incarnation to support Christ throughout the execution of his mission and then to apply what Christ has accomplished for the, to those for whom he accomplished it. That's the plan. What's it all teach us? These realities demand a perfect and complete unity of purpose and intention in the saving will and the saving works of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though the three persons have distinct roles, the Father electing, planning, and sending, the Son living, dying, and rising, the Spirit empowering the Son and implying His accomplishments, nevertheless, the external works of the Trinity are undivided. No person of the Trinity works or wills out of accord with the others. No, they don't work in unison, but they do work. Indeed, they must work in harmony and never in discord. The slightest rift in the saving will of the Father versus the saving will of the Son versus the saving will of the Spirit would undermine the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity. And that means, wake up if you've gone away, come back that the election of the Father, the atonement of the Son, and the regeneration of the Spirit must be coextensive. They must extend to the very same number of people. 
The extent of the Father's election must be identical to the extent of the Son's atonement, which is itself identical to the extent of the Spirit's regeneration. If any one person of the Trinity acts to save more or fewer sinners than any other person of the Trinity, they could not be said to be united in their saving will. And so the Father elects unto salvation. The Son redeems those same people whom the Father has chosen, and the Spirit gives life to those same people whom the Father has chosen and whom the Son has redeemed. So what is the question that must be asked then? If the Son redeems all those and only those whom the Father has chosen, whom has the Father chosen? Has He chosen all without exception to be saved? Or has he chosen a particular people to be brought to himself in salvation? Is the Father's election universal? Or is it particular? The answer is it's particular. In the inscrutable wisdom of the triune God, the Father has chosen to save some and not all from the just punishment of their sins. That brings us to our third point. We've seen the triune Savior, now the triune plan. We come third to the to triune particularism. Triune particularism as opposed to universalism. How do we know that the Father's chosen only some for salvation and not all? Turn with me to Romans 8. We've got to go here. Can't avoid Romans 8 and 9. Romans 8, 29. Look at it in your own text. For those whom he foreknew, that is, those on whom he set his electing love. You say it doesn't say anything about love. It says foreknow, foreknowledge. Just means those whom God knew about before. Oh, really? Does God know everybody before or just some people before? God's omniscient. Father's omniscient. He knows everyone. The rest of the passage, the spoiler alert, is going to say that everybody whom he foreknew, he glorified. If not everybody's glorified, this foreknowledge is not simple knowing beforehand because the Father foreknew everybody in that sense, but not everybody's glorified. So for those whom, whom he foreknew, that is, those on whom he set his electing love, those he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. That is, effectually called unto saving faith through the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. And these whom he called, he also justified, declared righteous through faith in Christ. And these whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. Friends, there are no missing links in that chain. Everyone who was foreknown, chosen, and predestined is called, justified, and glorified. Now, are all without exception justified? Is every individual who ever lived throughout history glorified? No. Hell will not be empty, as sad as it is to say it. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 13, that the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. And so if everyone who is predestined and chosen is justified and glorified, and not everyone is justified and glorified, then not everyone has been chosen by the Father for salvation. The following chapter makes this abundantly clear. Romans 9, 13, look at it. <clears throat> 
Jacob I loved, but Esau I what? I hated. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Verse 21, God is the potter and man is the clay. And as the potter, verses 22 and 23, the father has fashioned both vessels of mercy whom he prepared for glory and he has fashioned vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. And I know those verses bring up a lot of issues, but my only point here is just to say that the father has not chosen all without exception. There are vessels of mercy and there are vessels of wrath. So if the father's election is particular and not universal, and if the father and the son are perfectly united in their saving will and purpose, indeed, since the son's saving mission is nothing other than the father's appointed means to save those whom he's chosen, then it is impossible that the son's atonement should be universal and not particular. The Son's incarnation and atonement are birthed out of the Father's choice to save a particular people. The reason the Son is coming is to do the will of the Father who chose some. And I love the way that the theologian Robert Raymond captures this. He says, it is unthinkable to believe that Christ would say this. I recognize, Father, that your election and your salvific intentions terminate upon only a portion of mankind. But because my love is more inclusive and expansive than yours, I am not satisfied to die only for those you have elected. I am going to die for everyone. It is unthinkable. And yet it's exactly what you must confess if you deny a particular redemption. Said another way, if the atonement is universal, then either election is also universal, which we've established is not the case, or the father and son are at cross purposes with one another. But cross purposes with one another? The father and the son? Those who subsist in the single, undivided, divine essence? Divided in their saving purposes? Contradicting one another? And not only that, think about this. In, in Arminianism, you have the father choosing only those who he foresees will choose him, right? He looks down the corridors of time and he says, what are these people going to do? Oh, that one will choose me, so I'll go ahead and choose him. No, no, no. Who's choosing who there, okay? Number one. So the father, though, elects those who he sees will believe in him. The son comes and atones for everybody an entirely different group. And then the spirit regenerates only those who were saved, which is an, another group still. The, the spirit regenerates only those who actually come to faith and hear the gospel, right? Or it's not even that. The spirit doesn't even regenerate in Arminianism. I'm sorry. The spirit only makes it possible by preaching the gospel to them, which is another group entirely. So you have the father choosing one group, the son dying for another, and the spirit working in the lives of still yet another. Divided Trinity. It simply cannot be. 
Not only does Jesus himself say, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, but you would sooner divide the Trinity than find the Father and the Son with different wills trying to accomplish different things with different people. A universal atonement, when you really think about it carefully enough and when you tease out its implications for the rest of Christian theology, fatally undermines the doctrine of the Trinity. It is to introduce dissonance and discord where there can only be harmony. It is to strike at the very heart of the Christian faith itself. Unity in the Trinity demands a particular redemption. The saving will of the Father is expressed in his particular election. He's chosen some, not all, to be saved. And the Son explicitly states he's come to do the will of the Father who sent him. The reason Jesus believes he's on earth is to accomplish that specific mission. My food is to do the Father's will. I'm coming to accomplish his work. Well, if the Father's will circumscribed and conditioned, conditioned every aspect of Jesus' saving work, what was the will of the Father as Jesus understood it? I want you to turn now with me to John chapter 6. I came to do the will of him who sent me. What's the will of him who sent you, Jesus? John 6, 39. So verse 38 says, I came to do the will of him who sent me. Verse 39 says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Jesus does not say that the will of the Father is that he go out and try to save as many people as possible so long as he's a gentleman and respects their free will. He does not say that the will of the Father is for him to pay the sins of everyone who ever lived in order to make their salvation possible. No. He says there exists a group of chosen individuals whom the Father has given to the Son. Remember Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him. The Father chose his elect in the Son. To choose to save someone in the Son is to appoint the Son to be their Savior. So for the Father to choose to save individuals by appointing the Son to be their mediator, Jesus says, is for the Father to give those individuals to the Son. And Jesus says, of all that he has given me, those whom he's appointed me to be their mediator, those whom he's chosen, of all that he's given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Jesus is not providing the possibility of salvation for everybody. He is effectually saving all those and only those whom the Father has given to him, ensuring their resurrection unto life on the last day. I will lose none for whom I died. Friends, are people lost? Do people die lost? If Jesus says, I lose none for whom he died and people die lost, then he didn't die for every single individual. There exists a group of chosen individuals whom the Father has given to the Son, and it's on their behalf, he says, that he accomplishes his redemptive work. And he talks about this all over the place. This is not an isolated verse in John 6, 39. In John 6, 37, just two verses earlier, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Who's going to believe in Jesus? So anybody who decides of their own free will to believe in him. 
Not what Jesus says. Jesus says the ones who will come to him in faith are the ones the Father chose before the foundation of the world and gave to the Son. Turn now to John 10. In John 10, 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And I know my own and my own know me. Jesus knows his sheep. In verse 15, the next verse, he says, he lays his life down for the sheep. And then just a few verses later in verse 29, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So Jesus identifies those whom his father has given him as his sheep. These are the same group. And John 10, 15 says, I lay my life down for the sheep. I die for the sheep. I die for those whom the Father has given me. Jesus is telling us as plainly as he possibly can, I die for those whom the Father has chosen. And some people will say, well, okay, I can agree with that. Jesus died for his chosen, but he didn't die only for his chosen. Sure, he died for them because they're part of the world, and, but he also died for others. He's just talking about one specific group here. I'm going to do a whole thing on that objection. But don't miss this in verse 26. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Note that. Not you are not my sheep because you don't believe. Not faith turns goats into sheep. No, being a sheep is what causes faith. You don't believe because you're not a sheep. The reason you don't believe, Pharisees, is because you're not among those whom my Father has chosen from before the foundation of the world. You're not among those whom the Father has given to me. Now, for Jesus to say that he lays down his life for his sheep and then for him to immediately identify certain people who are not of his sheep is almost as plainly as could be said to say that he did not lay down his life for those Pharisees. I lay down my life for the sheep. Guess what? You're not them. So did he lay his life down for them? Oh, he just emphasized the sheep, but he meant the whole world. No. He didn't lay his life down for those Pharisees because they weren't the ones the Father gave to him. They weren't the ones the Father chose. And so Jesus did not die. Even if these Pharisees were the only ones in the world that Jesus didn't die for, he didn't die for all without exception. One more text, John 17. This is the text of Jesus' high priestly prayer. On the eve of his crucifixion, as he prepares to undertake the capstone of his work as mediator, he prays to the Father concerning those on whose behalf he performs his priestly ministry of atonement. In John 17, 2, he says to the Father, you gave the Son authority over all flesh that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? You think if Jesus believed in a universal atonement, you might have expected him to say, you gave me authority over all flesh that to all flesh I might give eternal life. But no, in distinction, from all flesh, the Son exercises his authority to give eternal life only to those whom the Father has given him. Look at verse 6. 
I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So again, in distinction from the world, but to those the Father gave him out of the world. The disciples were part of this elect number that the Father had given him. He, and then he says explicitly, they were yours. What do you mean? God owns everything. He's the creator of every single thing, every single person, every single animal. They were yours. That's a clear reference to election as this group belonged to the Father in a special sense in a way that the rest of the world did not. God set his love on his people and made them his own from all eternity. They were yours, verse 6, and you gave them to me. Here it is again. And then in verse 9, he once again explicitly distinguishes those whom the Father had given him from the rest of the world. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Do you hear this? I mean, the great high priest interceding before the Father on behalf of those for whom he would offer himself as an atonement for sins? He explicitly denies praying for the rest of the world. I'm not praying on behalf of the world, but only for those whom the Father has given me. How could Jesus refuse to pray for those for whom he's going to the cross? He couldn't. He would be a terribly faithless high priest if he did that, if he refused to intercede for those for whom he would offer. No. When it comes to those for whom he lays down his life as a priestly offering of atonement, he does so not for the world, but only for those whom his Father had given to him. And so if the Son had come to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is that the Son should give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him, and if the Father didn't give him the world, but only some out of the world, then the redemption accomplished by the Son is particular and not universal. This is triune particularism. So let me summarize once more. By virtue of their own unity of essence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are perfectly united in their saving will and purpose. Christ has been sent by the Father and in the power of the Spirit to save no more and no fewer people than the Father chooses and the Spirit regenerates. The Father has elected some and not all. The Spirit regenerates some and not all. To suggest that Christ is atoned for all and not some is to put the persons of the Trinity entirely at odds with one another. It is to be forced to say that the will of the Son is not the will of the Father and not the will of the Spirit. That not only threatens the consubstantiality of the persons of the Trinity, but it flatly contradicts Christ's own explicit statements that he had undertaken his saving mission precisely to do the will of his Father. As the Father has given to the Son a particular people out of the world, it is for these who Scripture calls his sheep, his own, his friends, the church, the many that Christ lays down his life for. Unity in the Trinity demands a particular redemption. And friend, if you're here this morning and you are trusting in Christ as your only hope for salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, brothers and sisters, do you understand the reason for your salvation runs so much deeper than a decision that you made? In fact, the reason you're saved is because of a decision that the Father made before the foundation of the world. Again, before you and I had ever existed, 
before the foundation of the world, before we had done anything good or bad, the God of perfect holiness saw you and set his love upon you for no reason in yourself. And he chose to save you from your sins. He chose to appoint his own dear son to stand in your place as your mediator, even though it would mean the undoing of his beloved son. And his choice had nothing to do with you. It is not based on what you might have done, what you might have believed, how you might have responded to his grace. It was sheer, unconditional, undeserved love. If you're a believer in Christ this morning, you can rest in the truth of sovereign election. That as Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And that he gives eternal life to his sheep and that they'll never perish and that no one will snatch them out of his hand. He is the good shepherd who will lose none for whom or none whom the Father has given to him, but will raise you up on the last day. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And to those outside of Christ, you may be wondering, did Jesus die for me? Has the Father chosen me? Am I one of those whom the Father gave to the Son in eternity past? For you, I want you to focus on the second half of John six thirty-seven. The first half says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. But the very next words are, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Dear sinner, God does not call you to peer into the eternal counsels of the divine mind. God calls upon you to come to Christ in repentant faith, turning away from all of your sins, abandoning hope in, in all of your righteousness, and trusting in Christ alone for all of your salvation. Jesus promises that the one who comes to him in simple faith, he will certainly in no wise cast out. Come to Christ, and what he has accomplished on the cross will avail for you, just as it has for us. Let's pray. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Father, you are glorious. Son, Lord Jesus, you are glorious. Spirit, you are glorious. And we love you for your salvation. We love you for the beauty of divine wisdom displayed in the act of salvation. You could have saved us in this haphazard, disparate, unequal way. And yet you save us in perfect harmony because that's who you are. And what beauty there is to behold in that harmonious symphony that is the triune God. Unison is great. Discord is terrible. Unison is great, but harmony is beautiful. And we worship you, one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity for the triune salvation that you have accomplished. Father, I pray that, that what has been taught here would find root in the minds and the hearts of your people, that they would treasure this glorious inheritance of the doctrine of the Trinity that has been preserved for us by the faithful efforts of faithful men for centuries. And I pray, Father, that we would bring the truth of the Trinity to bear even on the extent of the atonement. Just like every other doctrine in the Christian life, every other practice in the Christian life, may this glorious foundation of Christianity, the Trinity, be brought to bear on our understanding of what Christ did for us and for whom he did it. 
Help us understand the truth, not according to our own emotions, but according to how you've revealed yourself in the scriptures. And may you get the praise you are worthy of from your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.